fellow Bat fans, and welcome to another episode of I Am The Night. This week we're looking at Season 2, Episode 4, Avatar, written by Michael Reeves and directed by Kevin Altieri. And uh, from the very beginning, in Egypt, we knew what was coming. Didn't we, Adam? Yes, we did. Uh, with a title like Avatar, there was no airbending and there were no blue <laughs> cat people. We were instead treated to a, a classic... I'd say 20s or 30s adventure serial, in a way. And more, yeah. Yeah, with a vintage villain and thrills, spills, and high action that we'd come to expect from this title, and I was pleasantly surprised the whole way through. From the very beginning, we, we did recognise the uh, the face, even though they did a very good job of disguising him. When uh, the episode begins in 1898, just under 100 years ago. No, no, God blimey, 200 years ago, isn't it? No. Uh, bad 1998, 100 and something years ago. My maths, my maths isn't great. We're bad at maths, but then again, we are recording this at seven at night, and we haven't had our dinner yet. We're not we're not firing all thrusters, but we've got good Batman in our souls. That's good enough of a reason as any to yes, see someone we should know um, taking their strides, going into desolate tombs, but not finding precisely what they need. So it's <laughs> uh leads to the mystery in today. At the very least, and this is what I love about this series, as soon as we saw the Green Glow, we knew he'd found another Lazarus pit. Hmm. And we know that he'd been around long before 1898 because he says to uh, his mummy, uh, later in the episode, that he'd been searching for her for 500 years. So that already says that this guy's at least 600, 700 years old. But I knew that that Green Glow meant something. But um, the way oh, this this episode just made me smile. Again, readers, believe it or not, readers, listeners even, um, I have never seen this episode before. This one was brand new to me. Yeah, that was one I had to ask uh, right when the episode started. You pr- proudly claimed that this was one that was still new to you, one that you'd never seen before. And honestly, that's quite a show because uh, they showed them a weird orders out here in the UK. And then again, I'm going into the show largely quite fresh, so... I don't remember much of these either, so a lot of them are new thrill rides, but it's nice to have been on a thrill ride together. Yes, definitely. And what a thrill ride. I was transported back to my youth and the Saturday morning serials, which Bruce, Kevin Conroy, Batman mentioned this episode, but I also got massive Indiana Jones vibes and and Stephen Summers, who made the Mummy movies of the 90s and the early 2000s, needs to pay these people a commission because <laughs> there's so much in this episode that steals directly from this episode for in his movies. And um, I do believe that uh, the writer, Michael Reeves, and director Kevin Altieri may owe a debt of gratitude to Mr. Lucas and Mr. Spielberg because the whole statue toppling scene was very... Yeah, that was one thing I wanted to know about, just the, the strain that Banner was under just to topple that one statue to bring the whole temple down felt very much like that bit where they were trapped in the snake pit in Raiders. But then again, if we're going to talk about that, the guys who made the Mummy movies were inspired by this and these and the people who made this were inspired by Indiana Jones, but then Indiana Jones were inspired by those 20 serials yes, that were absolutely. inspired by those like 1880s novels. Yeah. Um, I think Aristotle once said that there is nothing new under he the sun. Did indeed. Yeah. So yeah, uh, great inspiration feeds into great stories, which feeds into great stories. If you're going to steal... Seven Still best. the best. Absolutely. And this episode feels like the serials. Yep. The silence. The Indiana Joneses, as you said, the great fantasy, the Alan Quartermains of yesteryear. But still, 
in a way that feels like a tribute and an honour rather than a rip-off. And there's just so much love there for the history of fiction as a whole. Yeah, and I think that level of respect is something that was sorely needed for a story like this, and it did it with a great effect. Um, it's got all of those elements of the classic stuff, but what makes it its own is because it's still in the now. It's still yes. um, modern-day caravan techniques and their weapons mm -hmm. into mm -hmm. modern day tech that Batman uses to get out of the predicaments that our bad guy puts them in um, modern day detective work and like the whole jet setting and travelling by map uh, to, yes. quote, to quote the Muppets but um, yeah they were able to take those classic tropes of old vintage stories and bring it into the now for our Batman yes indeed and what I love and this is clearly Michael Reeves possibly commenting on the major Russell Gould 2 part we've already seen. But, um, you know, I said that part two varied wildly from the comics. Mm. This episode with the snake bite right. um, directly links to the first Russell Gould story where Batman's poisoned by a scorpion. Okay. So there's even tips of the hat to the original Russell Gould stories of the 70s. And that, again, just makes me smile. They know how to respect the stories and they can bring that level of care and attention out from all of it. They are able to call back to it very nicely and just show that there's a sort of venomous side to Razogul that's consistent across all of the retellings. Yes, indeed. He is the world's oldest chauvinist. <laughs> <laughs> well, then again, I suppose if you're old, you're not going to necessarily be woke to from current Absolutely. feminist ideals. So if you're old, you are a chauvinist, which is... Not great, but then again, I think it's important to sort of respect those who are wiser and starting to grow out of the side of that. Yes, indeed. And that was a, one of the many great Bruce Wayne lines from this episode. Others include deductible and I have to go and meet Tammy. The way he puts on that Bruce Wayne fop playboy persona in this episode is one of the best we've seen this far i think yep because we get the framing of oh look at all of these ancient egyptian relics They're, these will be relevant to the plot later especially this one look how much we're talking about this one this one's going to be relevant to the plot very soon but um bruce wayne maintains his pattern especially to lucius fox someone who's connected yeah. and someone who eventually will go on to oh, know yes. the full deal of who batman is probably in the show i don't know for certain again we're in the Terror Incognita for me. I'm seeing loads and loads of stuff I have never seen before, and I'm loving it. Um, it was a late thing in the comics. He didn't know uh, Bruce's secret for a long time. So um, I'm hoping he discovers it in the show, but we'll, well, let's wait and see. We'll find out eventually, I, I would say. But still, we get him keeping that facade up quite effectively, even to someone that we know he'll eventually trust. Yes, so indeed. yeah, we get that fancy patter of Bruce Wayne very effectively here. But then again, there's some there are some interesting moments of like Batman's dialogue mm. that I wanted to touch on. Specifically oh, him saying that Raz is my most powerful enemy. What did you what was your takeaway on that line? There's no denying it. There's mm. absolutely no denying it. Whereas the Joker is his nemesis, the chaos to his order, Russell Gull has a fortune which probably dwarfs yes. Bruce. I mean hundreds of years of accumulated wealth. Plus the fact he's a near immortal. Plus the fact he has armies and probably legions of, of soldiers and assassins at his command. He is, without a shadow of a doubt, Bruce's most powerful enemy. And I'm, I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, and he made that assessment after one encounter with him. Mm -hmm. 
And he was quick to keep that assessment of him and keep him at that level of respect, even after he'd been presumed dead for months, according to his dialogue with Alfred. Yeah. So that level of immediate respect and reverence to someone of that importance is quite telling. Well, he, just like Russell, let's be honest, is a man of honour. And he knows that while his end game, his end goal is, to all intents and purposes, probably a righteous one, what he wants to do is save this world. But his means, his methods are downright genocidal and evil. Yep, and that can't be excused and he will be stopped by Batman every single time. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, that level of respect and just knowing of how serious a threat he is from the one encounter, a very big encounter with Roachu, is very telling and very interesting, yeah. I mean, Batman, what I love about the character is he knows how good he is. Yeah. But he is not cocky, he is not arrogant. He knows where someone is his match, or possibly more so, more than his match. Yep, and when it comes to someone who surpasses him in some ways, he has to fight in an axis that they can't. Indeed. Uh, and that's certainly what he, I think he is able to employ with Raz every single time. He's able to use that sort of diffusion, the like the means of being able to be one man boots on the ground and moving fast as opposed to someone who has to orchestrate that infrastructure that Raz does. Yeah, well done. Well said. Well said indeed. What I also have to comment on is we've already said that we get some vintage Bruce Wayne, but this is some of the best Batman as well. Swashbuckler adventurer, hmm. hero, saviour. I mean, the way he treats Talia, Ras himself and Dubu, he did not need no. to go back and save his enemies, but he did. Talia, yeah, we understand. She's hot. Fair <laughs> enough. Bruce, I dig it. But the other two, and that is his ultimate heroic side, and knock it or loathe it, You've got to respect it. It's the consistent level of heroism in the face of real danger that yeah. we just love him for. Because at the dramatic conclusion of the episode, we see him running and the other goons and Ubu are just sort of like standing around. And then they see everything coming down. It's like, oh, right, okay. And then they, just, they eventually start running. But when it gets to that point, he actually like saves Ubu, who had just spent like an earlier part insulting him and giving him a fight mm -hmm. when that first episode oh, yeah. started. But still, that level of heroism and that level of being a protector is, is exactly what we should get from a Batman and something we should look to see more of. So yeah. Oh yeah, completely agree. Completely agree. It's brilliant because we see him as a human being. I mean, right from the beginning where the scroll that would lead Rush to the goddess, the mummy, the immortal witch that he's whose power he wants to possess. Um, when Ubu appears in full hooded justice mode <laughs> to steal the, the second half of the scroll. When Batman captures and pulls off the mask, he's honestly shocked, but I actually felt a sense of relief when he realised that Ubu was alive and so was Russell Gould. He actually thought, well, I'm actually glad they're not dead. I mean, that's certainly a thing to see because there's they're a force and an intellect that he would respect. Yeah. And a force and an intellect that he would try to save, so it would be a shame to see them just go. Um, I also think uh, this might be a teensy part of him that would probably say, oh, it's good that it's these guys as opposed to somebody new that I had to look into and investigate. So, oh, okay, pragmatic. Yeah, okay. yeah it'd be pragmatic. But I I didn't quite feel the, the pleasantry in the surprise. I feel like there was just genuine surprise because 
sure he has to be pragmatic as well. He has to recognize that there are some times there are some people he just can't save. Mm-hmm. And as shame it was for those characters to have gone in his mind, them coming back suddenly in this story would have been a genuine surprise. So he reacted accordingly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nicely put. Nicely put. And someone who also acts accordingly in the brief scene he's in is my hero, <laughs> Alfred Pennyworth. Yeah. And, um, again, he's just the best, isn't he? He really is. Just being that uh, sour, (laughs) undercut of realism that we can truly expect from him to, yeah, just keep things realistic between him and Bruce Wayne. It's great. Do you not think that a John Cleese in full-on Basil Fawlty mood in the 80s or early 90s would have made the best Alfred of all time? If he was able to tone down some of the... Because when I see 80s, 90s Cleese, I see Faulty, and I see like the later end of the Flying Circus stuff. So I, I see him at high energy, so I don't know how well he can... I know he can turn it down, but I can't see that version of Cleese toning it down enough to be Alfred. I know he would do a great job, but I would need to see it. And to be honest, like he kind of looks like yes. the, the animated yes. series versions of... That's why I said it. I no, he looks like it now. It. Yeah. With now that he's distinctly grey and I know that he's on low energy enough now but can still like verbally undercut you which is exactly what you want from this version of Alfred his sarcasm yeah I feel like that I feel like he would do a very good job yeah, yeah. Um, you need to sit with me and watch two films Clockwise and A Fish Called Wonder to see him in full on acting mode I mean you saw him in uh, the Charlie's Angels film as Lucy Liu's dad right yeah he was in only he in the second act. one and he can act but he was still in a very comedic role because he thought that um, Lucy Liu was some sort of sex worker, <laughs> yes, and of course, to mostly to people, yeah. And he was just like genuinely shocked as um, Joe Tribbiani, I mean Matt LeBlanc, was giving off this tirade of description. So yeah, seeing him react to that, but still be condoning it was quite nice. But then of course, I know him to be like very prim and proper and serious, and the uh, character-defining performance that people of my generation would know him as, uh, the Frog King from Shrek. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, I can definitely see the range in the acting chops of Cleese as as Alfred. Let us get there before time and mortality gets to him, but that's not something worth thinking about. Well, he did get the Oscar for A Fish Called Wonder. So. Yeah, exactly. He'll do a wonderful job. Yeah. But I, I, it just hit me today. It'll be good. Because um, because of the sarcasm, because of, of lines from 40 Towers, like, excuse me, is this part of your brain? And, well, that is a view. What did you expect? Herds of wildebeest. Mm. So when Alfred says to Bruce in this episode, so, um, yes, um, where are you going? I mean, just in case the stockholders ask, I just got this flash of, of Basil Fortier and of John Cleese. If he, yeah, if he says it, like, in those understated ways that John yeah. Cleese says, just uh, Fawlty says it, if it was sort of like, um, like... Oh, we were looking for a, a small a wild animal sort of running around the running around the hotel. Yes, it answers to the name of Sybil. Just like that very quick, grovelly sort of jab. Then that would be the perfect way to play it. Absolutely brilliant. Wonderful. Now, of course, um, we've seen Helen Slater and David Warner seen. Heard, rather. I mean, because I, I see these animations as real people that that's how good this show is but um we have to talk about the main villain the the mummy the immortal witch of toth copera and the legend the hero one of my idols one of my childhood crushes 
and I recognised the voice, but I wanted to hope against hope. But when we saw the titles, mm. how did we both react? Oh, no way. Can't believe that she's in this episode. Yeah. Michelle Nichols. Um, it's quite tragic that most of the world will only know her as Uhura from Star Trek. I mean, even though that's a great thing to be known as, that they don't realise of her huge stage and musical accomplishments, a jazz musician and singer par excellence. I mean, she's performed with Duke Ellington and the old, for, for goodness sake. But, I mean, I don't know if you know the story of when she actually decided to quit playing Uhura. Uh, Gene Roddenberry, the creator of Star Trek, begged her not to leave. Um, she handed in a resignation letter. But at um, a gathering, a convention of sorts, um, Jean approached her and said, hey, there's someone who wants to speak to you. Would you talk to them? She said, yeah, I'll do. She thought it was a tricker, a fan, someone who just wanted to speak to her. It was Martin Luther King. Oh, wow. And he said to her, you cannot leave this show. What you're doing, what you're representing as a leader of black skin and as a female on this show you cannot leave. The next day she went to Roddenberry's office and said, listen, I want to take back my resignation. I want to stay on the show. Roddenberry opened his drawer and showed her the shreds of the resignation letter that were already <laughs> sitting there. Um, so that's a thing that happened. But even after Star Trek, I don't know if you know of her work with NASA. Oh, no, I, I was aware that she was like an ambassador or such. More than that, she is the ultimate ambassador for diversity for NASA. She's made sure that men, women, black, white, all races, all creeds, all genders, all types get work with NASA if that's what they want to do. She is a pioneer, a humanitarian, a great actress, great musician, and someone I adore and have done most of my life. When I hear stories like that with the Martin Luther King stuff, I sort of get blown away by the fact that history happens concurrently mm -hmm. like i don't know why because i've studied history at quite at quite length um like 20 20th century stuff is still quite interesting because so much happened because mm. we're all aware of it because it's all in living memory but when you put stuff like that together it, it does sort of like really blow your mind a little mm. bit because oh, yeah. so, part of you will sort of like hold Star Trek and pop culture in like a pop culture history sort of zone. Mm. And then you'll think of like civil rights, Martin Luther King, mm. Malcolm X, those guys yeah. in a whole other bubble. But you have to remember that they happened at the same time. Yes, indeed. So when those forces cross over together, like it blows my mind yeah. a little bit because you never expect those kinds of histories to be happening concurrently, but of course they do. Mm. So stories like that just lend so much more weight and importance to people and figures like this. Wow, that was that's really that's really important. She's a hero of mine. I, yeah. I adore her. And she, again, is one of these people who I pray it never happens. I pray she lives forever. But when this woman passes, I will be devastated. Yeah. I will be physically devastated because she is an idol of mine. And her work on and off screen, on and off the theatre, um, it's just incredible. And, Michelle, I know you're not listening, but <laughs> if by any slight chance you are, we love you, we salute you, and, and thank you for everything you've done for the entertainment industry and, and for the world, really. Uh, to anyone connected who may be listening, or someone with a great bloody-mindedness and is better at social <laughs> media than we are, if you're able to get those few seconds of us sincerely thanking this hero of science fiction, this icon of popular culture, and this figurehead of civil rights, if you can get those 
sincere thank yous out to her, we would be eternally grateful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, Barack Obama himself during his presidency met Michelle, told her she was a hero of his and a childhood crush of his. So I'm in very good company. There you go. There you are. <laughs> Evidently. Wow. Real history. I can I can see that this has this actually really, affected you. Yeah, because like it's important to recognise that those issues and the things that her and her contemporaries campaigned for still matter, and to only more to more than ever, and only to a certain extent have things gotten better. There's an argument that it sort <laughs> yeah, of hasn't. I think they've stepped back in some ways, um, but still the recognition that those figures of history are still relevant and still beating hearts in the community today and you can see how far back it's gone and how far those elements have sort of intersected Mm -hmm. without ever really thinking that they would intersect it's it's an important thing to keep thinking about absolutely and who knew that this is what we'd be talking about after watching an episode of batman the animated series i think that's also the point of the show really i think good art should be able to breed discussion oh yeah and blow tiny minds even if that wasn't the intention (laughs) or the goal, really. But, yeah. yeah. And again, she wasn't in it for long, but she was a presence, um, a great, terrifying villain. I mean, seeing undead and monsters and ghosts in a Saturday morning cartoon, I mean, I do believe some children would have found this episode a little bit scary. Some would, I think. Some little kids would. Just like the sudden change of her being all like radiant yeah. and beautiful to all being all zombie-like into the strange faces and twisting shapes coming out of the ooze and stuff. Yeah, it would be quite scary to some little kids. And how many films have ripped that off in the years since? Oh, untold, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even down to the mummy movies that you were talking about that yeah. you were at the beginning of the episode. Um, Six years after this episode? Only, well. Well, then again, I suppose uh, good inspiration comes from anywhere. It all comes back. It all settles back. Absolutely. Circling back. Yes. We've come to that moment in the show, as we always do, where I ask you, Adam. Yeah. What main takeaways did you get from this week's episode, Avatar, good, bad or ugly? I mean, I would talk about how atmospheric and wonderful the silent and the totally silent opening section was, because it was silent of dialogue and Mm -hmm. foley and sound effects. It was all music, which made it feel so incredibly vintage. I do love that moment, but it's very hard for me to think of anything other than, like, civil rights and Star Trek. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I'm it's totally... fine. I th- it's a beautiful moment in the episode as well, and something that I think really encapsulated the vintage vibe that they wanted to go for, considering the style of story they were telling. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it was still a great moment for me as well. And it's all true. People do look this up. It's historical fact that these things happened, and um, it's it's a wonderful, wonderful thing. Uh, my main takeaway from this episode is that they rectified a couple of the wrongs from the last Russell Gould story. They tipped the hat and honoured some fantastic pieces of fiction. And we saw an appearance of one of the all-time greats. So, again, brand new episode for both of us. Yes. But a damned good one, methinks. Yes, indeed. Very much so. Just a classic retelling of great storyteller styles done with our new favourite characters. Well said, sir. Well said. And speaking of favourite characters, favourite things, and things in general, what things do you do, and where do you do them? I do a lot of content. I make a lot of content. Uh, for written work, in and around the Bat Sphere, you can find my reviews on many titles a month on Dark Knight News. 
Catwoman and Suicide Squad are both in excellent spots right now, and I review them with the finest attention. But for my true love, PC and tabletop gaming, look no further than an hour, baby. Fantastic universes where I cover guides, let's plays, and my own opinion pieces across the various card games and battle royales that I jam to no end. Follow me on Twitter at Is It Tinker, or you'll find me again discussing my bad beat stories on said card games. <laughs> uh, for chances to level up your TTRPG skills, look to the Apotheosis Studios blog where I talk in and around the world of Dungeons and Dragons, but as bringing new monsters, spells, and supplements to your tabletop experiences. And for your visual pleasure, look to my Dungeon Mastery on No Ordinary Heroes on YouTube and find my own PC Let's Plays on the Hostile Atmosphere on YouTube. They are good. Watch them. Listen to them. Read them. They are good. As for myself, obviously we're on this show every week together, but um, this is one of many shows on the DC Comics News Podcast Network alongside The Spinner Rack and Mad Love, the Harley Quinn cast, and on YouTube, um, DCN After Dark. You can catch all of those on YouTube, Spotify, Stitcher, Apple, and Google Play. DC Comics News and our sister site, Dark Knight News, can be found on Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, YouTube, and across the internet. As for me, just type in Fantastic Universes or Steve J. Rains, your search engine of choice, to read my news reviews and interviews all across DC Comics News, Fantastic Universes, Dark Knight News, and C. B R. Talk to me on Twitter at Elstebo, E-L underscore S-T-E-E-B-O. But until you do, this has been the I Am The Night podcast with Adam Ray. He is the night. Together we are the night. Do take care. Uh, thank you for listening. And until next time, read more comics. And please watch more Batman and find anything you can about Michelle Nichols on the internet because she is great. Thank you for listening. Bye now.